Welcome to the Sisters Community Church podcast. In this episode, Pastor Ryan Moffat continues our Advent series where he talks about humility. And as a special bonus, we hear from Ashley and Misty, who are from an organization called M Perfectly. Let's listen. Last week, week one of Advent, we talked about hope. And Steve reminded us that the story of Jesus actually breaks out not in the best of circumstances, it's in the midst of many difficulties. 400 years of silence, promises where the people are waiting, when is this gonna happen? And we were reminded that our faith does not rest on the human effort. Our faith rests on the promise of God. And this week we're gonna look at the second theme of one of humility. And as you go through the the Christmas narratives in both Matthew and in Luke, both of these gospel accounts go out of their way to tell this principle over and over and over again. And the principle is this. God is at work through little people in little places doing his greatest and most significant work. The sermon this morning is titled, Little People, Little Places, Big God. Do you hear that this morning? Do you feel that with energizing divine power? Your life, as insignificant as it might feel to you today, can have profound meaning, purpose, and impact in the hands of the master. And while our lives do lack awe and wonder, and though there is a disconnection, the Christmas story, the Advent story, is that God is at work through little people in little places, doing his greatest work. And so when we look at this teaching this morning, we look at these scriptures this morning, it's really interesting, uh, both Matthew and Luke, as they're narrating the Advent miracle, the story of God coming to earth over and over and over again, they include details of a bunch of nobodies. So the mother is going to be this teenage woman named Mary who's a nobody. And Christ is going to show up to this people named Anna and Simeon who are insignificant. And then the powerful people in Matthew's gospel Herod and the great governors and power players of the day, they miss it. But the people who are insignificant and small, they receive it. In Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, uh, God is in the Manger, uh, wonderful book. In this In Your Advent book, just so you know, there's a lot of Bonhoeffer in here. You'll love it, okay? Bonhoeffer says this, he says, in total reality, he comes in the form of the beggar, the dissolute human child in ragged clothes asking for help. He confronts you in every person that you meet. As long as there are people, Christ will walk the earth as your neighbor, as the one through whom God calls you, speaks to you, and makes demands on you. And so God is at work, God is showing up. Matthew 25, a passage later on in Matthew's gospel, kind of bookends the end of the gospel. 
Jesus actually says, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done it to me. So this gospel advent news is not for the haves. It's for the have-nots. It's not for those who have it all put together. It's for those who said, I don't have it together. I'm needy. In fact, when Jesus shows up and gives his first sermon, he gathers all the nobodies, all the marginalized, and then he looks at them and he says, you're the blessed ones. Blessed are those who are mourn. And the whole audience says, that's us. He says, you're going to be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger. You're going to be filled. So start with me in Luke, or sorry, in Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to read a couple of texts, then we're going to flip back to Micah chapter 5. So those will be the two passages we look at this morning. Matthew 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when he arose and we have come to worship him. Now, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And what I want to just mention in this narration of this story is that when Jesus comes as the new king, it's either comforting or troubling. It's one or the other. Herod's troubled. He doesn't want to lose his kingdom. He doesn't want to lose his power and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet. And this is a direct copy paste right out of Micah chapter five. And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So just flip back to Micah 5. We already read that passage. Jim read it for us. But it's in this passage, verse 2, exactly what Matthew's quoting from. So Jesus is showing up. Herod's troubled. And it's really important for the way the story unfolds. Very important that The way it happens, it has to happen according to Micah chapter 5 because it has a theological significant point that Matthew wants to embed into his narrative. And mainly the point that he wants to make sure that we get is that this thing must happen by the most unlikely means. Could have came through Rome could have won the popular vote, could have got a good social media platform and really worked Twitter, got more followers, didn't. Went to Bethlehem. And it's very significant for Matthew because there's deep meaning in the way that God inaugurates his victory. That theological significance has all kinds of significance for what it means for our lives today. And I want to make four points through the the Micah passage this morning. Number one, the victory of God's greatest work, it's initiated within a story of incredible conflict. Okay? So if you go back to Micah chapter 5, 
Uh, the, the, here's the context of Micah 5. It's, it's different names, same story. So in, in Matthew 2, the, the conflict is with a guy named Herod and the powers that be. In Micah chapter 5, it's different details, but the same story. And the conflict is not with a guy named Herod. It's with a power called Assyria. And they're really, really mean people. Okay? And they've squelched down and captured Israel. And Israel's going, we kind of would like to have a little bit different life circumstance. And so Micah 5.1 says, muster your troops, O daughters of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So the same conflict is happening, different powers, same conflict. And what I want to say real quick about this, this morning, is that we tend to believe that the presence of conflict means the absence of God. We tend to interpret life and go, well, if there's any contested stuff going on, God's presence must not be a part of that. But what you see in Micah 5, in Israel's current context of their moment, and what you see hundreds of years later, where there's a retelling of the Micah story through the story of Jesus, conflict with kingdoms, conflict with leaders, conflict with Herod, conflict within and without. The the presence of conflict, friends, is not the absence of God. And so what I want to tell you this morning, what's the Advent nugget for you this morning? The presence of the conflict you feel in your life is not God abandoning you. God is at work. He's doing his greatest work, and he's doing it behind the veil, and at times we cannot see. So the great uh, hymnist, William Cooper, he said, trust not the Lord with feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Because behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And our felt need at time is, God, where are you at? And God is working his greatest plan, sometimes in the dark. And I was just thinking this week, getting ready for this teaching, none of us have had 400 years of silence. Can you imagine? The people of God, no word, no weekly gathering, no corporate worship, no teaching from the 400 years of silence. What is God doing? He's doing his greatest redemptive work in the dark. Number two, the second thing I want you to see, God is at work and he's bringing his greatest promises through the least likely of people. Verse two of, of Micah five, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you're too little to be among the clans of Judah. It's from you that one shall come forth to me, for one is to be the ruler in Israel from whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. God's bringing his greatest, most powerful, redemptive work through the least likely of means. Now this, this theme of Bethlehem, we don't have time to really unpack it, but what you're going to see all through the Old Testament story is anytime Bethlehem shows up, it's a nobody. It's an unexpected person. You guys remember which king of Israel had a dad from Bethlehem? David. 
Now think with me about the story of David real quick. Dad is, 1 Samuel 17, dad, Jesse, is from this place called Bethlehem. And Jesse's asked, uh, bring your sons out. One of them's gonna be king. And who does he bring out? The studs. Bring out the thoroughbreds. But he's got this little, I love the Old Testament word, ruddy. A ruddy feller. I think that kind of means like, you know, he's just kind of small, kind of a runt. And then Samuel says, no, 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 there's one you forgot about. Bring that one to me. And who is the king? Is it the studs? It's the nobody. And so this theme of Bethlehem is one where we should be thinking through the biblical narrative, oh, Bethlehem's here, the unexpected thing's about to happen. The second time we see Bethlehem is in the story of Ruth. And Ruth was a Moabitess woman, but she ends up in this place called Bethlehem. I'm not going to spoil the end of the story, but I'm going to say this. Ruth ends up in Jesus's genealogy. She ends up being the great-great-grandma of David. And so God's at work through this place called Bethlehem, and the principle is this. Little people, little places, big God. So when Jesus shows up, he comes through Bethlehem. Now think about this, Galatians 4, the passage Eric started the service with, with, it says that Jesus sent forth his son in the fullness of the time. Think about the time where Jesus showed up. How was the, you know, how was healthcare? How was like, they didn't have Amazon now, you know? Amazon Prime, too slow. Amazon, they didn't have that. They didn't have all the luxuries we have, so he came in one of the most really historically difficult, cruel times. If you read human history, right when Jesus showed up, there was more violence probably going on than maybe any other time in history. So he shows up at the strangest time. He doesn't go to the palace, doesn't go to the temple. He goes to Bethlehem, and not only does he go to Bethlehem, where does he go in Bethlehem? He couldn't get a room at Motel 6. He's going to the barn. Now think about this. Not only does he come to Bethlehem, not only does he come not to the hotel, he comes to the the barn, but he comes as a baby. Any parents or grandparents out there today? Okay. Think about a baby. I read an article this week. It says that there's not a more needy living being on planet Earth than a human baby. Have any of you guys been there for like a a horse or a cow to be born? Don't recommend it, but I've done it a few times, okay? One time I was pulling a leg out. I don't want to talk about it. Um, That cow sits there for about an hour, kind of gets its breath, and then what's it doing? standing, and it's kind of wobbly, and then within an hour, it's doing what? Walking, and then for an hour, it's doing what? Running, running with the herd. Um, any of your kids walk before uh, eight months? Moffat kids are real slow, like two and a half years old. You got this, you know, I don't know. It's like, 
weak knees or something. I don't know. God is at work. And what is he doing in in this move? He's confounding the powers of the world. He's flipping the power structures. We think God is working through the biggest, best, richest, most beautiful. No. God's at work through the nobodies. And so the principle I want you to feel and see and grab this morning is this. Dream big. Start small. Big dream. Save the world from the power of sin, Satan, and death. Pretty big idea. Start small. Baby. Bethlehem. Manger. Reminded of this picture, this illustration of this uh, toothpaste company, and they were having a problem. They were about every 10th toothpaste, they were shipping an empty box. Can you imagine going and buying your toothpaste and this is too light, too light, you know? Um, And so they hired these companies to figure out what was going on on their production line and had all these engineers come in and look at the thing and try and figure out a thing. And they spent all this money and time trying to figure out how do we fix this production line? And later that night, they saw a uh, minimum wage worker. He grabbed a box fan, plugged it in at the end of the production line, turned it on full blast. Every box that was too light flew off the conveyor belt. He's confounding the engineers. <laughs> Common dude, box fan, 999, target, done. <laughs> Brother Lawrence, he was a dishwasher, not a preacher, said this. He says, We can do little things for God. He says, I can turn the cake that is frying on the pan out of love for him. And that done, if there is nothing else to call me, I prostrate myself and worship before him because he's given me the grace to work afterwards. I can rise happier than a king. It is enough for me to pick up a straw from the ground for the love of God. Zechariah 4, the prophet says, do not despise the day of small things. And so I don't know where you sit this morning. I don't know if you're in the season of waiting and you're wondering, man, my life has not produced the stuff I wanted it to produce. There's a dissonance between what I thought my life would be in terms of impact and reality. And what I want to tell you this morning is the Advent miracle, the Advent story, is God is at work through small things. Dietrich Bonhoeffer goes on to say this. He says, who will celebrate Christmas correctly? Whoever finally lays down all power, all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism besides the manger. Whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be high. Whoever looks at the child in the manger and sees the glory of God precisely in his lowliness. The Advent story is one where we don't despise, minimize, or hide our lowliness, we joyfully embrace it because we know God is at work in our little lives. 
And I just want to tell you this, and then I'm going to have some friends come up. This week, I had a situation where I was in a, a conflict with a, a member of the body of Christ. And I was not wanting to meet with this person. Okay? And we had a t- time together this week, and I just want to say, God met me in that meeting. So where is God at work in my life? Why do I share that? You might think, well, you, you know, you're a preacher, so probably through that. Yeah, I hope. But God was most present to me this week in this work of reconciliation with this individual. So where is God at work in our church, in our lives? Through the middle schoolers, through the kids, through that conflict that you can go and humble yourself and own your part. That's where God will be at work in the Advent story in our church during this season. I want to give a good amount of time to some friends this morning because I think one of the things we need in the church today is we need pictures and stories and we need visions of how do we do this? Because we hear a lot of things, but you might hear today and be excited and go, well, but what do I do? How do we become an Advent people in our lives, not just in December, but in January, February, and March? And, and how do we hear the word and, and apply it in a way that's meaningful? And so I met this uh, woman, Ashley, uh, a few months ago. I got a random phone call. She said, you don't know me, um, but our son's playing the same football team together. Foot- See, football, it's very biblical. No, oh, very, very biblical. And uh, she says, I want to share something with you. So we sat down and talked. And she shared with me what God had put on her heart. And I, I said, you know, I don't know when it's going to make sense, but when it makes sense, I would love for you to share this with the church because we need models. We need examples. And she brought a friend with her, Misty. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give these ladies some time to share their story. And what does it mean to be little people in a little place just doing our part? So ladies, uh, come on up and uh, thanks for being here today. And Take some time and share your story with us. When I was in college, I had two priorities. The first was figuring out when my next social will be and what the theme of it was. The second part was wondering what I was going to wear to that social because I needed to be the best dressed. It was early in September and I was on my way to my favorite store when I got stuck behind a handicap bus and it was lowering a little girl in a pink wheelchair with a balloon strapped to her wheelchair down to the ground. She was clapping ferociously, and her parents were mimicking her gestures, and they all embraced in a warm, fuzzy hug. It appeared to have been her first day of school, and she was very excited about it. I watched as her father carefully wheeled her up to the flight of stairs to the top of their house. He then picked up that wheelchair and slowly, carefully ascended each of the stairs to the top of their house, and they went in. I thought about that for a moment. Gosh, that little girl's only going to get bigger. That daddy's only going to grow older. But then I had a mission. I needed to find that homecoming dress. It was very important. Two weeks later, I'm sitting in church. I had no idea what the pastor said. All I could think about was that sweet little girl in the pink wheelchair and her father carrying her up those stairs. I was like, man, I got to go back. I got to do something. 
But let me tell you about this family. I grew up in South Georgia, and this family didn't look like me. In fact, they lived on the other side of the tracks. The tracks were blonde-headed little girls like me. They didn't belong. The world told me, Ashley, don't go over there. That's not safe. Ashley, don't cross those tracks over there. You don't belong over there. You don't know what could happen to you if you went over there. But there was a still quiet voice inside of me that said, you belong over there. And please be obedient. So I went. And I knocked on the door when I got there. And when I went there, this mama came to the door and she said, are you lost? I said, no, ma'am, I don't, I don't think so. Do you have a little girl that's in a pink wheelchair? And she said, yes, I do. Her name is Khadidra, and she's got spinal bifida. And I said, well, I saw your husband carrying her up the stairs. I don't really have a plan for this, but I, I can figure it out. And I was just wondering, would it be helpful if I had a wheelchair ramp built for you? And she fell to her knees, and then she said, Lord Jesus, we've been praying for a miracle. And she started crying, and she said, God sent me you. Behold, right there in that moment, that would be the first day that I tasted the fruit of the Holy Spirit when you were obedient to him. I chased that feeling for a long time, trying to find what brought that kind of eternal joy I thought it would be through big paychecks, so I got the medical device job, and I worked it for 13 years and added zeros to my paycheck, but I'd never been so unhappy in my entire life. The good thing about medical device sales is that they put you through a lot of personal and professional development training, and one of the things I went to was a communications course that was just so magical. I learned how to communicate effectively, and it was awesome. There was an opportunity for me then but years later, my husband's job would take us to Seattle, Washington. There, I started working for this company, and I started training C-suite executives from big companies like Twitter, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, the C-suite executives. I got to teach them how to engage the audience and how to have a more memorable presence. These companies had billions and billions of dollars and they were creating new ways to connect us faster via the internet. But friends, these big companies, they were in the heart of San Francisco and in Seattle where I was living, where mental health was at an all-time high. And they were not making the connections with the people right outside their window. So I wanted to start a nonprofit. I wanted to start a nonprofit that would help the people outside those windows because if a corporate woman is scared to climb the ladder, the corporate ladder, and ask for help, couple that with layers of trauma from homelessness, from addiction, from domestic violence, from human trafficking. How does she ask for help? So Imperfectly was born. It's a nonprofit that empowers women in self-belief through leadership development, self-confidence building, and effective communication skills. And we not only provide them these tools and equip them with skills that will set them up for life, we hope to hire them out of graduation from shelter programs, teach them how to fish, give them an opportunity that has purpose, give them an opportunity that gives them financial freedom to provide for themselves and their family. I met a beautiful soul through this organization. She's my dear friend and sister in Christ, Misty Wirtz. She has got a big voice. 
who's going to move mountains. And at this time, I'd like to invite to the stage my friend Misty. Recently, I found myself reading through a rather thick file from the Department of Human Services Child Welfare Office. The mother that they described in these pages was so sad. Um, she had multiple pregnancies where she had used marijuana and meth. And it talked about how she was dependent on other people to help her parent. The last pregnancy that it wrote about was by far the worst. This mother showed up in January 3rd to the Bend Hospital, and her baby was not due until January 30th. This is where the shift that I saw in this woman. It talks about how honest she was when she walked into that hospital. It talked about how she had just used hours before, and that she was scared that she was gonna lose her baby. I know that the shift in this woman was happening because that woman was me. And I gave birth to that little boy who's now six years old. I put in a lot of work on myself and I ended up not losing my son. But I wasn't happy. After my case was closed, I fell back into a deep, dark depression, darker than any depression I've ever been in. I. In November of 2018, I had a breakdown, and I spent 12 hours in the emergency room psych ward with a paper suit, all alone, so confused. At the time, I didn't have my family to call. I didn't have anybody. And I remember praying, God, if you're really there, please hear me. Please hear me. And I reached out to the Shepherd's House program. It was a new, thing that I had heard about to help women and children get their lives back together. It was a long-term commitment, and it cost everything that, you know, my job, my, my social life, everything. I had to give all of that up in order to go into this program. I remember going to church in December. Um, it was December 9th, and I heard the pastor's story and his story of God meeting him on that bathroom floor the moment that he surrendered. And that story stuck with me. And I thought, if he can do it, I can do it. I've lived my life for 22 years running from my problems, turning to drugs, to men, to alcohol, to whatever it was that would take away that pain. I finally, oh, so then the next week when I went to that church, they were doing baptisms. And the church asked if anybody else was wanting to be baptized, and my arms flew up. I said, me. And I rededicated my life to Jesus that day. I was baptized in water, and when I came out of that water, I knew I was new. The old was gone. And then the next week, December 23rd of 2018, I was accepted into this program, and I got to move in two days before Christmas. While I was in this program for a year and a half, I learned to work through trauma. I learned to build my relationship with Jesus. I learned what community looked like. I learned what accountability looked like, transparency. I learned what it was really like to be loved, truly loved. Um, I graduated that program in May, 
of 2020 during COVID. That was fun. Um, <laughs> it was a very, it was a drive-through graduation. We sat on the side and we waved, but we still graduated. And that was the only graduation that my mother got to see me. And that meant the world to me. Um, because of this program that I went through, I was able to navigate so many mountains and valleys afterwards. My son, who is the baby that I described earlier, he had behavioral problems in school. I went through four different schools before he hit kindergarten, trying to figure out what was going on with my little boy. And the guilt and the shame that I carried around with that because it was my fault, I don't have to carry that with me anymore. Um, I was able to navigate disability services for him. And that, if anybody knows, is a struggle. Um, we went through intensive youth services through the county. Before I had gone through this program, there's no way I would have signed up for the county because they weren't out there to help me. They were only there to read the pages that I had read about myself. And I was able to work on myself so I wasn't that woman anymore. Um, when I got COVID, my job, I was working at the Habitat for Humanity, they went above and beyond to try to support me until they couldn't anymore. And with a son with disability and high needs, trying to get a job that is flexible with you, that will allow you to leave whenever you need to go pick up your son, is very um, non-existent, or so I thought. Um, when I got on my feet a little bit more, I started working with nonprofits and walking along women who have been in my shoes. They didn't know anybody was there to help them like I didn't. And that's why I, it's my mission to reach back my hand and to help those women who have been where I've been. And that is where Imperfectly comes into play. When I met Ashley, we did a mock interview at one of her workshops and she, brought so much courage to me, I had the courage to stand here in front of all of you today. This wouldn't have happened if it weren't for the class that I took with her. And it's just, it's an incredible mission and it's what I hope to achieve in my life. So thank you. I'm, in, I'm truly in awe of her courage every day. She's what makes me get up and go. Friends, we live in a world that wants to lay down railroad tracks. They don't want you to just cross them, they wanna pile them high, higher and higher. They wanna keep white people on this side and black people on that side. They want Republicans on this side and Democrats on that side. They want poor people over here and rich people over there. But my question is, how many of you want to see a visible God? How many of you want to love like Christ does? Because if you do, you're going to have to cross over that track. You're going to have to move those rails. You're going to have to look into the eyes of somebody who doesn't look like you. You're going to have to look through those eyes into the very soul of their being. 
You're going to have to hold their hands, and you're going to have to walk alongside them. Because love does. Love does. And love shows up in the little people in big ways. I wanted them to come and share because some people in this church have asked me, how do we get involved? What does it look like to help? Friends, there, there are people that are leading the way and we can learn and we can show uh, after the service, Misty and Ash are gonna hang out up here and you can come and interact and figure out how you can be a part of what they're doing. Someone in the church just called me this week. Hey, our, our family wants to run Christmas and help provide Christmas for another family. And, there are people doing stuff that we can learn from. And here's the great part, friends. It is never our human effort. It is not our human strength. The Advent story is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, 27, and 28. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the foolish things to, sh to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong, so that there might be no boasting before God. And when you don't have to boast before God, you know what your response is instead of, God, look at me. It's the beautiful response of gratitude. God, look at you. Look what you've done. You've done what I couldn't do. And loved people, love people. Found people, find people. Served people, serve people. And that's what we get to be a part of in the Advent story this year. So as we go to communion this morning, I didn't, this was my big right hook. Uh, does anyone know what Bethlehem means? House of, house of bread. House of bread. So in the book of Ruth, there's a famine in the land, but someone from Bethlehem <laughs> comes and saves the day and gives the bread, the manna that the people of God need. And communion is the spot where we as a Bethlehem, tiny, insignificant people, we come and we get fed. We get real food, real drink, because when we're a fold people who are filled with the sustenance that comes from Christ, we go into the world not needing it to provide because we've been well-fed, well-taken care of at the table. So as you go to the table this morning, friends, you guys get to grab the, the cup and the bread, and uh, we, have, we put leaders here and elders at our um, tables every week so you can be prayed for. If you need to be prayed for, these people want to pray with you. So I'm going to pray. And unlike Steve, I'm going to wait to take my communion with you. <laughs> so you guys grab your, uh, your elements and then we'll take them together. Father, thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for providing so well for us. Thank you that even though we're small, you're big. God, thank you even though that we're weak, you're strong. God, thank you that even though we're not as significant as we like to be either individually or corporately, that you're at work in the little things. You are the God of Bethlehem. I'm reminded of the great description in the book of Genesis. We learn from Hagar, you are the God who sees. Please see our weakness this morning and don't be disgusted. Instead, God, backfill our weakness with your strength. God, see our 
personas this morning, the ways that we act better or stronger or richer or prouder than we ought and backfill it with grace. Sustain your people through the real bread that comes from the house of bread, the house of God. And may we be a Bethlehem people sustained by the power and the provision of the Most High God. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this encourages you to dive deeper into your relationship with God through prayer, scripture, worship, and community. We hope you can join us on Sunday mornings at 9.30. For more information, go to sisterschurch.com. Be blessed, friends.